Well, good morning. You know, I was just thinking, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to, to preach when the time comes and you have your mask off. I'm, I'm just becoming so used to this now. We want to uh, first welcome and thank um, Haley Heinen for coming and filling in for uh, Amy Reaver. Good to have you back. Um, also, let me uh, just note, you'll see a brochure in your bulletin about um, it's time to nominate elders and deacons. And uh, so please look that over. Uh, take it seriously. Be praying about uh, uh, who you think would uh, fill those roles well. And uh, you see a ballot in there that you can fill out. You can place it uh, in a box there in the, uh, the narthex. Uh, you can bring it in next week. Mail it in. You can call in to uh, Yvonne, whatever. Now, I'll tell you, if you call into Yvonne, she's going to ask you, did you ask that person? So if you don't want to get in trouble with her, make sure that you first ask the person that you nominate. Also, I do want to mention that August the 29th and a couple of Saturdays is a prayer rally, a Pray for America uh, gathering that's going to be held at the football field in, um, in Greensboro. It is a, um, uh, a prayer gathering that is uh, hosted and we sponsored and put on by pastors, I think, from more than 30 churches that will be there. Uh, we, um, the mayor uh, of the city will be opening up the event, and he has been just a super supporter of this. So I encourage you uh, to mark that on your calendar. And don't forget also, those of you who received the, uh, the emails that I sent out about um, another project uh, honoring our heroes uh, in, in very tangible ways, uh, providing uh, gifts and encouragement to the first responders uh, of right now Greensboro County. I believe it's going to be moving also to Putnam County. And uh, if you want to know more about that, speak to Doug or Jeannie Hesse, or you can speak to me or a number of folks here in the church. Now let's uh, prepare our hearts for worship.
Bishop, and I want to read from 1 Timothy. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Let's, let's pray. We do give you thanks, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, who has come into this world, who has displayed his perfect patience to us, and indeed has come and has given to us such amazing grace that we who were sinners who had no call upon you, have now been made your very people, but we've been made your people for a purpose, and that is that we might come here and declare your glory, to worship you and to give you praise forever. And so we pray that you will receive this worship we bring before you in the name of Christ and by the power of your Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Amazing grace. seated. For a confession of faith, um, I've selected a passage from the Westminster Confession of Faith on the work of the Holy Spirit, and note particularly on the work that the Spirit does within us, and you'll see how it's related to the sermon 
uh, later on. So let us confess our faith together. God's chosen ones are redeemed by Christ and are effectually called to faith in Christ by his Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives them life and renews them. He enables them to answer the call to come to Christ and embrace the grace offered in the gospel. As the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit assures them of belonging to God. The Holy Spirit sanctifies God's people. He convicts of sin and leads to repentance. He gives them ability to do good work, to will and to do God's good pleasure. By his continuing presence, the Holy Spirit enables them to persevere in the faith until the time of their glorification. Let us pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And our Father, we do give you praise and thanksgiving. You are the one who dwells in heaven in your holy temple. And you who are the Lord, the great creator, the sovereign king and ruler over all, you are also our Father. Not only is that as a title, but it is a real relationship to us. For you have made us your beloved children. And how have you done so but that your God the Son has left his home in glory, came upon this earth, took on our flesh, died for us, we who were sinners, we who were your enemies, so that we might not only be, be saved and be reconciled to you, that we might be your children. And you have sent your Holy Spirit to awaken us and to give us faith, to, to turn, to repent from our sins and turn to Christ. And it is your Spirit who is in our very hearts that calls us to cry out, Abba, Father. Oh, we praise you for such wondrous and amazing grace. We pray that we will hallow your name, that we will give it due honor that we will give it due honor in our very worship of you this morning, that we will give it due honor in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, wherever you have placed us and you will take us in this coming week. May we honor your name in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, our Father, for our Lord Jesus to return and for your kingdom to be fully consummated. And when he returns, or when you should call us to you, may we be found faithful servants for your kingdom. May you find us faithfully following after and confessing our Lord Jesus Christ and faith in him. May we be found faithful in service through good works and through a good character. May we be those and people seeing a hope for our salvation and they would ask us for the reason for that hope. And may we faithfully uh, proclaim the reason for that hope. 
that we have in Jesus Christ alone. We pray, our Father, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that we, your people, will do your will. We pray for your church to do your will. We pray, our Father, for you to give us wisdom in in a world that is growing more and more complex. Our values are constantly being uh, challenged, trying to understand and navigate our way through a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile uh, to the faith. Give us wisdom. Give us encouragement so that we will know and have the courage to do your will. We pray, our Father, to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel and in living it out. We pray, our Father, for uh, this uh, prayer uh, rally that will take place in a couple of weeks. Pray that it will be a, a great time in which your people, called by your name, will be faithful in praying for our community, faithful in praying for our nation, pray, be faithful in praying for this world. We pray, our Father, for an end uh, to uh, this virus. We pray for those who are on the front lines protecting us, defending us. Uh, we pray for to bring peace, uh, a measure of unity in this, in this uh, country. We pray, our Father, for, for justice. We pray also, our Father, for uh, an understanding of one another and a truly seeking of working together. And may your church, your people, be the ones who take the lead on this. We pray, our Father, for our daily bread. We particularly pray for the, the bread that we need of your word, of fellowship, the bread we need from worship itself. We pray that um, you will provide for us physically, provide literally the food that we need, the, the well-being, the medical care that we need, the friendship the encouragement, all that is needed to to prosper in this life and to prosper in serving your kingdom. We pray that uh, you forgive our debts, which are many, as we forgive our debtors, which is very few. We pray, our Father, to always to be open to the work of your Spirit, examining our hearts, that we might see that sin that is still remains within us, Confess that sin. Look to you for that work to sanctify us. And we pray for your protection. That we not be led into temptation, but that you deliver us from the evil one, Satan, who uh, seeks uh, our downfall. We pray for your protection from the world that would seek to lure us, to draw us away uh, from you. We pray for protection from our own weak flesh, which so willingly gives in to temptation. We pray this, recognizing all of this, that to you belongs the kingdom, the power, and the glory. In Christ's name, amen.
seated. One of my uh, churches that I had a long time ago was a small church that I pastored in Bessemer City, North Carolina. It's just outside of uh, Gastonia, west of uh, Charlotte. Well, we had a, an elder who determined that Ginger and I should have a garden. And uh, so there was space in the manse that we were having. It was a fairly large space, and he, he plowed the spot. He gave us advice, and then he left us to it. And uh, we had to produce because he lived across the street, and he could watch uh, what we were doing. Well, the author of, of Hebrews is concerned about his people's crop, And I want you, as we're going through this text, to be thinking about your own. That's going to be a question at the end as we go through a very sobering text. You know, the problem for preachers who preach through books of the Bible is that we come across texts like this one that we would prefer to skip over. We we Reformed uh, preachers do not like this text because of the wording. It seems to challenge our doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Baptists don't like it either because it uh, challenges their doctrine. Once saved, always saved. And really no one likes it because it seems to challenge to believe that one who is strayed from the faith can come back. So with all of that in mind, let's jump into the deep water with uh, verse 4. And following. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, it sounds here, doesn't it, like our author is claiming that not only can we lose our salvation, but that once it is done, it's over. We cannot get it back. So that not only seems to be saying, can we not be sure of keeping our salvation, once we lose it, the only thing we can be sure about is we can never be saved. But is that really what he's claiming? That we can lose our salvation and that we can then cross a line of no return? Well, first of all, I want us to consider the manner in which he presents these supposed saved individuals. Look how he describes them. They are those who once have been who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and have tasted the powers of the age to come. What he presents here are five experiences. Now, these experiences, um, he, he does not identify these folks, these fallen souls, as, as those, for example, who have once been regenerated, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. 
He does not identify them as those who have once been justified in Jesus Christ. He does not refer them as to the elect, the ones who were chosen before the foundation of the world. For that matter, he does not plainly say those who have been saved. He speaks of what they have experienced. They have been enlightened. They have tasted. They have shared. If he really wants to make the point that one can lose their salvation, then just say it. Why not state the matter plainly? Now, another thing is from our own experience. I mean, most of us will concede that we do know of individuals who, to us, they seem to be saved, and yet they have left the faith. But having said that, we also know of cases of those who, yes, they left the faith, but then they returned to that faith. In fact, a very common testimony, it might be a testimony of some of you, is that of a young person Coming to faith in Jesus seems to have a strong faith, seems to be committed, and then they get older, maybe they enter high school, or maybe they enter college, and they, they stray away, they lose their faith. And then what happens? Well, they get a little bit older, and they come back. It's a common testimony. Well, according to our author, if we're going to interpret it this way, that can't happen. Another thing to think about is Jesus' own teaching. You remember the parable of the prodigal son and of the lost sheep, you know, the son who comes back and the shepherd who goes out and he finds that straying sheep. He said that in response to two religious leaders who were criticizing him uh, for evangelizing sinners. Now, who were sinners? They were Jews. They were fellow Jews who had left the faith of their fathers. And Jesus is trying to get them back. Is our author really telling us that we should give up, we should not try to reclaim those who have fallen? And another matter here about the author himself. He's, he has already been assuring his readers of the confidence that they can have of their salvation. So back in chapter 2, he assures them that Jesus is their merciful, their faithful high priest. He has made propitiation for the sins of the people. And he's going to uh, take them even further uh, into this teaching of Jesus is their high priest, how they can trust in him. He's got them. Now, if he really is teaching in this particular passage that they can lose all that, well, then he... He could not have done a better job of undermining his own intent throughout the rest of the letter to build up their confidence of their hope. And then there's one other thing to think about. And this is for those of us who believe that Scripture, all of Scripture, does not contradict itself. How could we square interpreting one text as teaching that one can be that one who is saved by Christ can be lost by Christ? When Jesus himself plainly promises that all whom he saves will never perish. Let me read from John 10, 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them 
and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And that's plain speaking there. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. I know what I am talking about, says Jesus. So, with all of this in mind, the ultimate fault, if we were to to believe that the the Hebrew writer is actually teaching that one can be saved by God and then be lost, the fault of losing salvation would lie with God. And think of this. I mean, in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, 4 and 5, we're told that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. We're told that, uh, again, Jesus has just told us that God the Father gives us to him. And once he gives us to Jesus, we can never be lost. No one can snatch us out of the hands. We're told in Romans 8 9 that the Holy Spirit has come in, that he has given us new life, that he comes into us. It's the Holy Spirit who's telling us to cry out to Abba, Father. And so to lose salvation would be to slip through God's hands. We say, well, you know, I know Jesus, I know what you told me, but you were wrong. It would require somehow our kicking out the Holy Spirit. It would require us foiling God's choosing us. We, we would have to be stronger than God. We would have to outsmart him. We would have to be too tough for God to handle. And all of this, after he has won us, after he has given us life, after he has sealed us with the Holy Spirit, God would have failed. Does that make sense? Now, there are people who appear to be saved, who have had experiences that match outwardly what true believers experience. Well, those persons can, and they will fall away. The Apostle John speaks of this in his letter in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, speaking of, of people for whom this has already happened. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So with all that in mind then, what is our author? What is he trying to teach him? Well, it's not so much what he is teaching, but what he is exhorting. At the close of his letter, he will identify the type of letter that he has written. And he will call it a word of exhortation. In other words, what he is, is he is a pastor. And he is concerned for his, his people, his congregation here, for what he sees as a, as a subtle falling away from Jesus. And he's trying to wake them up to their danger. He wants them to understand, look, salvation is not a game. It is not to be toyed with. It is not just some kind of thinking about life that we, you know, we adapt into a mere perspective about 
you know, how we understand life and what happens to us after death. The stakes are real. And he's saying, look, those who profess faith in Jesus, you can't go back and forth about your Lord. You can't compromise faith in Jesus and faithfulness to Jesus because, well, you want to be more accepted by your family and, and by your friends and, and, you know, you want to be fit in more with the, with the culture. You can't do that. He says, look, you, these are people who, they know the truth. They've understood the gospel. They've heard it. They, they, they can, can tell you what it means. And they have tasted it for a while, the, the freedom from the law. Remember, these are probably Jewish Christians, and they, they've now been free from that burden, having to fulfill the law. They felt the power of this freedom. They have tasted the love of God. They have, they have felt love for their Savior. And if you, he says, look, you're feeling all this. You can't go back. If you go back, you're crucifying him all over again. Wake up. And the next two verses reveal what has alerted the author to his reader's danger. Verses 7 and 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Land that produces a crop, that is what the author is looking for. And it's the very same thing, by the way, that Jesus pointed out as what gives evidence of true faith. You remember his parable of the sower who sows uh, the seeds on different land. And he gives an explanation to his disciples about it. This is from Mark. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. Now listen to this description of them. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They hear it. They like it. They understand it. They they, they have tasted the goodness of it. And um, they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution, the exact same thing that is happening right now uh, to these, uh, to the readers of Hebrews, those things arise on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the worm, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. They are those who, who continue going to church and continue to carry all the trappings, but they are not fruitful. Nothing is bearing, coming out of their lives. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it, and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. That's from Mark 4, 14 to 20. Now, you can easily pick up, can't you, on how Jesus is providing a commentary on this whole passage we're looking at. He explains how people can hear, how they seemingly receive the gospel, how they can 
taste of these things, how they can feel uh, the power of it, but then fall away. A true believer, uh, the one truly saved, possesses the right soil that produces a fruitful crop. And what about those unfruitful? Well, just as our author says of this, that they will be burned in the end, so Jesus, in Matthew seven nineteen, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, these are sobering words, aren't they? By Jesus, by our author. But it's actually right here at this point where our author softens. And he, he gives them assurance. In verses 9 and 10. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And I can almost hear him thinking, can't we? Maybe I'm going a little bit too far. (laughs) Maybe I'm worrying them too much. All that he has said about these types of people are true. But he's saying these things not because he believes his own readers have reached that point. He's giving them warning, but not judgment. And now he wants to give them assurance. He wants to give them that assurance that they, the readers, have not fallen away, but that they are truly saved. And he gives them two evidences. One is in the fruit that they are bearing, and the other is in the justice of God. Their fruit is the work that they have done in the name of Christ, and especially in the way that they have lovingly served one another. And doesn't that sound familiar? Jesus said, this is the mark of a disciple. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's John 13, 35. And then God is just. He does not save us for doing good works, but he does command and he rewards us for our good works and uh, that we do after our salvation. More than once, Jesus speaks of the reward awaiting those who have faithfully served him. And now the last two verses express plainly the goal of Hebrews. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You know, he could have gone straight from there, cut out all the upcoming chapters and gone straight to chapter 11, and we never would have known anything was missed. Chapter 11 will flesh out the theme that he presents here, which is to remain faithful to Christ to the end, and thus receive the inheritance that awaits. In chapter 11, our author will name, uh, one by one, these men and these women of faith whom we are to imitate. So he's exhorting them. Don't give up. Run the race to the end. Keep your eyes on the goal. The hope of the Christian is to be welcomed into God's kingdom. A kingdom that will be consummated when Jesus returns. 
And our author, he wants his people, he wants them to be hope-filled, not fearful. He does actually want them to have assurance. He's, He's not trying to undermine their hope. Rather, he wants their hope to be founded on solid ground, on real evidence. Hope, not doubt, is to be their motivator. So what do you think? What do you think of the job that he has done so far? Do you feel, when you read a passage like this, you feel more assured of your salvation or less? Do you feel more motivated to live for Jesus or you're more doubtful that you can? Well, this is where you have to take a deep look into yourself. Now, there are outward signs that you ought to look for, but even those signs can be misleading. Now, you take the matter of producing a crop. You can perform many good works, works that produce a crop of blessings. You can be a Sunday school teacher. You can serve the poor. You can contribute to good causes. You can, you can start new projects. And all the while be as lost as ever. I tell you, there are many kind, generous, and religious people marching to their judgment. And for that matter, there are also many people who, who are knowledgeable with the right doctrine. they got it all there in their head. And they are heading in the same direction. Again, there ought to be outward signs. We ought to produce a fruitful crop. We ought to bear good, the fruit of good works and of a good character. That's what he has been saying to them. He wants them to produce. But this is not all that he's been doing for them. He's also been spending even more time in teaching them doctrine. Remember that? He thinks that the cause of fruitlessness lies in a shallow theology. He wants his people to grow in their knowledge of Jesus. They want him, them to grow in knowing who he is, what he has done for them, what he is still doing for them. Because he believes that lack of knowledge will lead the Christian astray as it dulls the Christian mind. But even then, he wants such knowledge to move the heart. Knowing he wants them to know that Jesus, and and these are the doctrines already that he's been teaching them. He, He thinks that knowing that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, that he is the exact imprint of God's nature, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, that Jesus is God. He thinks that kind of knowledge should move these believers to be filled with awe and be filled with reverence for their Lord. People then are desirous to obey him. Knowing that he has made purification for sins. That he is the founder of their salvation. That he has destroyed the one who has the power over death. That he has delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He thinks this kind of knowledge should empower them to live fearlessly for their Lord Jesus Christ. And knowing that their Lord is a merciful and faithful high priest, that he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He thinks that kind of knowledge should move them to love him, to rest in their Lord and Savior. Here's the system that is in the book of Proverbs to, to, to give that full assurance of hope until the end. It is this, know and grow in knowledge of Jesus 
growing knowledge of God and all that pertains to God. For such knowledge will then move the heart. It will move the heart to love, to be faithful. And that will then produce a faithful crop of good work and character. The head to the heart to the hands. Knowledge to passion to deed. Mixing up these steps or not understanding them rightly will lead astray. If we depend on good works to get ourselves right with God, that will fail. Doing good works without a grateful heart will fail. But knowledge, knowing that your salvation rests in the person and the work of Jesus Christ alone, that must come first. And if so, then that knowledge, it will lead to a strong, loving, and devoted faith. And such faith will then just spill out into good works and character. Again, true knowledge leads to true faith in Jesus expressed in love that will produce good fruit. And so examine your heart. If you remain unsure about this, then talk to me as your pastor. Or or talk to anyone in whom you have seen this assurance of hope. And you've seen it spilling out in their lives. Talk to them because the stakes are real. The peace, the assurance of hope, the productive life, they are all there for you. If you will first dare to examine your heart before your Lord and turn your salvation over to him. And we give you thanks and praise our God for that salvation that is in Jesus Christ alone. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who has awakened us uh, to that salvation. And may we, by the power of your Spirit, before our Lord, before our great God, examine our hearts so that our hope, our assurance may rest on a sure foundation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together two verses for all the saints. bless you and keep you. The Lord makes his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Here's another amazing grace.